Well, last week, we had our dedication service, and it was important, it was significant, but this week is more important, because this week, we're baptizing, and that trumps dedication. That trumps so much. Baptism matters. Baptism matters, and so we're going to dig into baptism today and really do a a more of a topical approach, which isn't something we do a lot, but we're going to really come into baptism and try to make sense of it and and form the real theology sitting behind it. I want to start off with you by looking at the statement on baptism that's present in the Baptist faith and message. So the Baptist faith and message is a doctrinal statement to which we subscribe. And let me read this to you because fonts sometimes are harder to see depending on where you're at in the sanctuary. It says, we believe that Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. So this is what we say we believe. But let's dig into it. And let's really make sense of it. What I want you to see today as we look at baptism is that baptism is commanded. It is something that is commanded for us to do. It is symbolic, not salvation, just a symbol. It follows salvation and properly practiced happens through immersion. So that's what we're going to really dig into is all of those elements which are all in our statement from the Baptist faith and message. When we participate in baptism, we participate in a tradition, in a practice that is nearly 2,000 years old and has been practiced for nearly 2,000 years. This is a major component of our faith. So let's start by looking at the fact that baptism is commanded. Baptism is commanded. If you want to begin turning in your Bibles to Matthew 28. That's where we're going to get there in just a second. What I want you to see is that Jesus, in the Great Commission, commanded baptism as a central component of the Great Commission. Baptism is key in the Great Commission. And that's where we're going to really hone in on, where we're going to get to it. Jesus, in Matthew 28... His last words, his sort of final statement that he gives to the disciples, he provides what we call the Great Commission. Read with me what it says. Matthew 28 in verse 19 is where we will focus. Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus commanded baptism. He gave that as a fundamental aspect. Actually, what he commands is go make disciples of all nations. So that's the command itself. Uh, In the text, that's the imperative The thing that we are told to do is make disciples. And then what follows is Jesus says how disciples are made. 
So he starts by this command, go make disciples, and then he explains how disciples are made. There are two keys to discipleship in the text. The first key is baptism. The second key is teaching. We talk about discipleship. We have put a real focus on discipleship as a church, and there are lots of churches that are putting a focus on discipleship. Here's the thing I'm going to tell you. If you're not baptizing people and you're not teaching people, you're not a discipleship church, plain and simple. Without baptism and without teaching the Bible, that's not discipleship. That's called social club. We're not going to do that here. We are a discipleship church. We baptize people. We teach people to follow Jesus. In fact, that's really the, the second subpoint here. Baptism is part of following Jesus. It's a fundamental part of following Jesus. You see, back in Matthew chapter 3, and we'll read that in just a second, but you can start turning there if you'd like. Back in Matthew chapter 3, early on in Jesus's life, in Jesus's ministry in particular, he was baptized. I want to sort of set the stage for you. At the time when Jesus was born and when he grew up, and he was probably baptized when he was 30, at the time when all of this was occurring, the Jewish religious system had a lot of rules. And they sort of had this understanding. They said, if you are born a Jew, so you have the right genetic heritage, and you follow the rules, you'll be right with God. And that was really the religion of the time. If you're born a Jew and you follow all of these rules. And when I say they had lots of rules, they had lots of rules. They had rules about how far you could walk on a Saturday. They had rules about how much you were allowed to carry on a Saturday. Somehow, if you follow all these rules, you will be in a better position with God. Well, John the Baptist entered the scene And we read about this in Matthew chapter 3. And John sort of turns everything on its head. He says, repent. What do you mean? I've been following all these rules. You know, I I only walk so far on, on the Sabbath. I only carry so much. And John says, no, repent. Repent. And then John gives a symbol of repentance. The symbol that John gives is baptism baptism. Identify with your repentance. Identify with your God. It's not about your genetic heritage. It's not about following a bunch of rules. It is identifying with God. So we get to Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. And I want to read this with you. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. So, understand the circumstances. 
Jesus comes on the scene. John is baptizing people. And Jesus says, baptize me. John looks at Jesus and says, whoa, you're already righteous. You don't have sin in your life. You should be baptizing me. And what does Jesus respond? He says, calm down. Let it be so for now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus is saying is this is a good act to do even for somebody who is righteous. It fulfills it. Jesus is saying, I want to identify with the work of God. Jesus was baptized not because he needed forgiven for sins, he hadn't sinned at all, but rather as an act of identification with God's righteousness. Jesus publicly identified with God. Baptism is part of following Jesus because it is a public identification with God. I also want to remind you that the normal behavior of someone who chooses to follow Christ is baptism. The normal practice for someone who chooses to follow Christ is baptism. I've got lots of scripture up there. We're not going to read it all. We are going to go to Acts chapter 2 here in a minute. In Acts 2, people decide to follow Jesus, they get baptized. In Acts 22, people decide to follow Jesus, they get baptized. In Acts 19, people decide to follow Jesus, they get baptized. I could have put a lot more scripture up there too. But there is a normal pattern of behavior. When you decide to follow Jesus, you choose to be baptized. Throughout the book of Acts, we see this is God's pattern. So let's go to Acts 2, verse 38, just so you can see how this plays out in the book of Acts. Acts 2, verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. It is the way that God ordained. I didn't go through all of the other passages, but I I do want to point out to you that even in Acts 19, there was a group of people who had been baptized before knowing Jesus. And the Apostle Paul in Acts 19, and you can write it down and look it up later, asks those people to be rebaptized. They've been baptized before knowing Jesus, and Paul says, go ahead and get rebaptized now that you know Jesus. The idea here is that baptism identifies us with Christ. It is a step of obedience. It is a step of following Jesus. The verse that we have for our memory verse of the month is actually a verse on following Jesus. So if you don't mind, I'd like you to recite with me 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. So 1 Corinthians 11 1, this is our memory verse of the month. So let's say it. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. We are to follow Christ. 
and then call on others to follow us. So my action step is really simple for you. Memorize and practice 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Follow Jesus. If that means to be baptized, follow him in baptism. If that means to call on others to follow you, as you follow Christ, do so. On Monday of this week, somebody asked me, they said, so how, how does it come about where somebody decides to get baptized? And I told them every once in a while, somebody comes up to me and says that they want to get baptized. 90% of the time, what happens is I walk up to someone and I ask them, hey, are you ready to be baptized yet? And 90% of the time they say, oh, not yet. And then a couple of weeks later, they come to me and said, yeah, I am now. Be a church where we are teaching and baptizing. Let's talk a little bit about the theology of baptism. The first thing that I want to really get into is that baptism is symbolic, not saving. Baptism is symbolic, but it's not saving. Baptism is an outward physical symbol of an inward spiritual change that has occurred. The event is salvation. Belief that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died on the cross as payment for our sins, rose again three days later, giving us the promise of eternal life and putting your faith in that truth. That is salvation. Baptism occurs afterward as it symbolizes. It symbolizes death to the old way of life, pre-Christ, and resurrection to the new way of life. By being placed in the water, we symbolize dying to the old way of life. And by coming out, we symbolize the resurrection to walk in the newness of life, a life lived in Christ. So baptism is symbolic. It's symbolic of the Christ follower's death to sin and resurrection to newness of life. That's the picture that we paint in baptism. We're not going to go to Romans 6. We're going to end up going to Colossians 2. But I want to talk just momentarily about Romans chapter 6 because I've got that as a, a verse to support my argument here. Romans 6 paints a beautiful picture of what life should look like after salvation. That life lived after salvation is lived under the protection of grace. What does that mean? Does somebody who's accepted Christ as their Savior never sin again? No. Saved people sin. We should make that a license plate or something. A bumper sticker. Saved people sin. It's true. But we live under the protection of grace. God's wrath is not poured out on those sins because of grace. Romans 6 paints this picture. We strive to be more and more like Christ. And then in Romans 6, 4, it reminds us. It says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through glory of the Father so that we too may live a new life. Save people's sin, but they strive to live like Christ. And that's the picture of baptism. 
Turn in your Bibles to Colossians 2.12. Colossians 2.12 states, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Buried with Christ. The baptism, the dunking symbolizes death to the old way of life. It's symbolic. So let me ask the question. I've said it's symbolic. I've given you some verses. Is it merely symbolic? Or does it in some way save a person? The answer is baptism does not save a person. Baptism does not save a person. Scripture abounds with evidence of this. We're going to go through a couple of verses. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Let's turn there in our Bibles. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's by grace we're saved, not baptism, through faith, not works. Baptism is a physical action. It is, for all intents and purposes, a work. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us it is not works that save us. Baptism must merely be symbolic. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, 17. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church of Corinth, makes a clean distinction that there is a difference between baptism and the gospel. And that strong implication comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Paul makes a clean distinction. The gospel is different than baptism. And Paul, the apostle, was not sent to the church at Corinth to baptize him. He was sent to preach the gospel. People would follow who baptized because baptism is a natural step. But baptism is not saving. And really what it comes down to is baptism cannot replace the gospel. The gospel matters. It matters that we believe the gospel. I've given you several verses here that we're not going to go to. Romans 6.23 tells us the consequences of that sin. The wages of sin is death. But we learn in Romans 5.8 that Christ died for our sins. He paid those wages. So simply, Romans 10.9, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you can be saved. And then, as you'll see in Romans 8, there's no condemnation. So this is the gospel. As really given in Romans, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Christ died and paid those wages. So if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you can be saved. And as a result, there is no condemnation for those who make that decision. That's the gospel. Baptism does not replace the gospel. So really, this brings us to our next main point which is that baptism follows salvation. 
Baptism is the natural act that follows salvation. I've got two key arguments for this. The first is I'm going to give you a historical argument from the book of Acts. And the second, I'll give you a logical or systematic argument that baptism should follow salvation. We're going to look at the book of Acts, and I'm just going to pull out a couple of case studies. But baptism in the book of Acts was reserved for those who had believed in Jesus as their Savior. We're going to go back to Acts chapter 2 and learn a little bit more from Peter. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter calls on the people to believe and be baptized. It was for people who had already believed. It was an act that symbolized their belief. At the conclusion of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, and we already went through the verse, it said, repent and be baptized. Step one, repent. Step two, be baptized. In verse 41, if you continue on in that passage, which we're not going to go into all of those details, but in verse 41 it says, those who accepted were baptized. The consistent message in the book of Acts is that baptism follows salvation. Well, you might ask, what about infants? I've heard from somebody that babies were baptized too. Okay, I'm going to say no. That's a misreading. And I'm going to go ahead and let's do it. So a lot of times people get that from something like Acts 16, And without reading all of the verses, but you're welcome to turn to Acts 16 if you want to check what I'm saying here. Acts 16, 33 through 34. We'll go through that short part of the verses. And so let's actually read that. Acts 16, 33 through 34. This is the Philippian jailer. After Paul is released from prison, he shares the gospel with the Philippian jailer. And this is what it says, starting in verse 33. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have offered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave and go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Sorry, I read further than I said I was going to. What about this whole household being baptized in Philippians? Does that mean the babies were baptized too? No. And let me give you a couple of arguments why it doesn't. First of all, first of all, later it says the whole household believed. So we also must have had babies believing. If we're going to have babies being baptized there, we also have to have babies believing. That seems a little bit far-fetched just in the text there. But if we look even wider 
at the Greek word there for household. The Greek word there for household is a generic word for everybody who's really involved. It's really just like a a global catch-all phrase. It doesn't necessarily mean every single individual. It means everyone to whom it's relevant. Uh, And you might say, how are you going to prove that to me? That seems far-fetched. So I went and did some digging and looked at other letters that had been written by people. So Ignatius of Antioch is a pretty prolific writer about AD 100, and he wrote in Greek. And so if you look at Ignatius of Antioch's letters, he writes, and this is my translation, I greet the household, same word for household, of my brothers with their wives and children. When Ignatius of Antioch uses the word household, he actually only meant the men in the house, adult men, because he adds to that wives and children as separate. The word household does not mean babies automatically. We can't accept that as just meaning every single person. It rather is a generic term. So this argument that people make, that since whole households were, were baptized, babies must have been baptized, is based on a false assumption. Household may not include everybody in the house. In fact, baptizing babies isn't written about, nobody writes about baptizing babies until the year AD 200. So, by the year AD 200. And it comes up in Tertullian's writing. Tertullian is a theologian. And Tertullian writes that we shouldn't be baptizing babies. So, it apparently came up in the church, and Tertullian writes it's not a really good idea to be baptizing babies. We should be baptizing those who have accepted Jesus as their Savior. That's plain and simple. Let me give you one final argument why I think that's the case. Between AD 50 and AD 70, there was a a set of church policies and procedures written. I'm serious. It's called Didache. And we actually have a copy of Didache the church policies and procedures between AD 50 and AD 70. And the really cool thing about Didache is it actually talks about how we should do baptism. Now, this isn't scripture, so we don't have to follow it. It's not authoritative. But it tells us what the early church was doing. And in their policies and procedures, the early church had a policy that you needed to fast for three days before we would baptize you. Okay? I don't think, Jacob, you skipped breakfast. He did not. We don't have to follow Didache, but we can use it to gain insight. I don't know about you, but I would not want to be baptizing a baby that had not eaten for three days. (laughs) Baptism follows salvation. I want to also talk about immersion. We baptize by immersion. Why? For several reasons. First of all, the word baptize means to immerse. Plain and simple. Actually, this is, a, this is a, a, an issue with translation. We don't speak Greek. That's not something that we, we walk around in our church doing is speaking Greek because we're not Greek. Although when we use the word baptize, we're speaking Greek. 
We should have translated this when we translate our Bible. If we were being accurate to the text, we would stop using the word baptism altogether and we would write immerse, plain and simple. That's what the word means. It's a Greek word that we've stolen into our language and then we've corrupted it by making it mean other things. It means to immerse. The word baptize means immerse. So uh, the text that I've given you, and I'm not going to make you read this with me, is Mark 7, 3 through 4. And if you look in your Bible, you might think, does he have a typo? Why in the world are we talking about Mark 7? It actually is talking about washing your hands. Okay? And it's cool because there are two different words for washing that are used in this passage. One word is uh, nipto, which means to sort of done. And the other word is baptizo, which means to really clean up. Both words are used here. The word baptize means to immerse. It's the idea of really cleaning up, not just a light sprinkling with water that some people do when they're in a rush coming out of the bathroom. No, it's the scrubbing and the like washing dishes type action. That's the idea of baptism. The consistent practice of Scripture was also for baptism to be by immersion. That was the consistent practice in Scripture. Several passages bring this up. Matthew 3.16, John 3.23, Acts 8.36-39 talks about there being lots of water. Talks about Jesus coming up out of the water. Talks about going down into the water. When Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, they both go down into the water and come back out of the water. Baptism means to immerse. The practice that the early church did was immersion. Also, since baptism is symbolic, immersion fits the symbolism. Buried, risen. Baptism should be done by immersion. Finally, something worth noting. Archaeology supports this. The early churches had baptism tanks. That's something they've discovered in early church buildings, very early church buildings, is they actually had tanks at the front for baptism. If we go back to Didache, Didache, again, remember, that's that early policy and procedures manual of the early church. It actually talks about preferences for baptism. It says if you can find flowing water, that's preferable. So that'd be a river. If you can't find flowing water, then stationary water is acceptable. It's what's written in Didache. So they'd be okay with our tank back here. The idea here, though, is consistently throughout Scripture, we have baptism is symbolic follows salvation, and properly practices by immersion. We've been commanded to baptize people. And so, today, we're going to baptize. But before we get there, I have a question for you. It's an action step. Are you following Christ? Following Christ means choosing to be obedient in baptism. If you've already been obedient in baptism, then choosing to be one who encourages others to do the same. 
we need to make this a part of our regular discipleship. Baptizing and teaching, they go hand in hand. As a church, let's continue to be a Baptist church where we make baptism a priority, not just because it defines some theology that we have, but because baptism defines something that we make part of our discipleship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for baptism, for the symbolism present in baptism, for the command to baptize, for the practice of baptism. I pray that as a church, that we would baptize. Father, it's in our name. But let it not just be in our name. Let it be our practice. The name is somewhat irrelevant. What we do is what matters. And I pray that we would baptize. I pray that you would bless those who are going to be baptized today. I thank you for saving them. We pray that this act of obedience would be pleasant in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.